0: Well, I'm Micah Redding, and I'm here with Zoltan Istvan, a journalist, author, philosopher, and uh, I would say a sailor. Is that a good <laughs> summation? Yes, excellent. I like the sailor part, for sure, for sure. <laughs> I, I haven't seen a lot of people kind of point this out, but but uh, I, it seems like you're eminently qualified as a sailor to me. Like, um, So do I have this right? Like, At 21, you, you took off sailing around the world? yes yes so uh at 21 i
1: did take off sailing around the world um my sailboat is currently in greece i i still uh Hmm. have it and uh I have sailed uh, across uh two oceans and plan to finish my circumnavigation here in probably uh i don't know a year or two am I'm, I'm only like literally uh eighty days away from getting back to the west coast <laughs> so uh yes and i but I've spent about seven years on the ocean officially oh. um you know um sailing uh and going to islands and just discovering tribes and just having a great time frankly most of my mostly in my twenties
0: yeah. So that's that's awesome and sounds like an amazing experience. Now, um like so what uh what things did you kind of discover along the way? Is it just uh a big blur of of different experiences or are there some kind of discoveries that stood out to you? Well, you know, I think the biggest thing about my
1: trip and probably the most uh you know f- as as far as what formed how I view the universe and stuff like that was the fact that I had, um, about 500 books aboard my boat. That was kind of the main cargo of that trip. And, um, they were all sorts of books, everything from Virginia Woolf to Ayn Rand to, uh, many of the other classics to biology texts, to texts on physics, you know, the, the whole range of uh, things. And, um, I had so much time. Uh, it's, the time seems so luxurious now as I have two kids and a wife and, a, you know, live in the suburbs, uh, so uh, mortgages. Time seems so, yeah. such a luxury to me now, but I spent, you know, literally uh, about four of those seven years just reading. Of course, there was traveling and uh, you know sailing and stuff like that. But a lot of the time was just sitting late at night, early in the morning, through the afternoons, drinking coffee, reading. And that was what I felt really formed most of my uh, experiences of that entire trip. Not so much the traveling, but the books that
0: I read. Hmm. So how did you how did you choose those books? Did you just kind of go through a a library, uh, throw a bunch of stuff in a bag, and uh, then, you know, prepare to pay the late fees when you got back or like, what was your mechanism? <laughs> so some books that I wanted, uh, I did uh, take from
1: the library. Um, uh, just a few of them. Most books <laughs> I got at used bookstores, which used to exist, right. uh, no longer exist. And, you know, you could buy 25 cent paperbacks. Yeah. And um, I, you know, I'd, what I did beforehand was read the thousand, uh, you know, most well-known classics and the ones that I hand read or the ones I wanted to reread, I took and um and then of course i took a diction you know a giant dictionary a giant thesaurus a giant some encyclopedic uh stuff and then i took some basic uh science books and stuff like that so i had a real good all around if you want to educate yourself in 4 years but outside of the academic system or scholastic mm-hmm. system this is a good way to do it so that's how i did it but you know the the majority of the books were uh autobiographies or uh, just great fictional novels, or really, uh,
0: you know, best-selling nonfiction that I was really interested in. Hmm. So um, this this kind of makes me think of, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, like a scene from from Faust, uh, where you know he's like read all the books in the world and decided they're all rubbish. So what was when you got to the end of you know reading all this? What was your kind of takeaway? What did you think was valuable out of those books you had chosen? <laughs> Uh, you know, what a what a, <laughs> a difficult question. Uh, I
1: became quite inspired along the way by many of Anne Rand's books. Um, in fact, specifically speaking, The Fountainhead was a book that dramatically affected me. And if I had to throw away all the other books, I would keep The Fountainhead. Um, and I felt like that was the one that really remained with me. Now, before I read The Fountainhead, I was... Uh, um, deeply influenced by Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. Hmm. So between the combination of those two books, uh, I really found something I felt was important in my life. The Fountainhead gave me the integrity of the the artist, and that's what I found to be the most important part of that book. And in Siddhartha, in Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, it gave me the idea that um, to find peace, you really need to accept things however they happen. And those Hmm. two Ideas may seem that they, uh, you know, the antithesis of each other. Yeah. However, you know, as as uh, someone who's interested in writing and discussing uh, transhumanist ideas, uh, I think they actually go well together. And you can see them both play out in my book, one in the character of Zoe, and then the other in the character of Jethro Knight.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. I think that um, the idea of acceptance and uh, then kind of authenticity or struggle or resistance to the world... Um, those are powerful ideas and and i personally like have uh those always come back to me because i i'm never able to resolve that tension um so it sounds like you're you were able to make more sense out of that than <laughs> than i've been able to uh in a lot of ways um so I, maybe we'll we'll get into that cuz that's uh that's really a deep and interesting subject to me but so it sounds like you know you you took um you took off around the world. You read, you know, five hundred books. Uh, you, I think, um, along the way, like you went to. I read that you went to like a hundred different countries. Is that is that accurate?
1: Yeah. So, you know, actually on my sail trip, I went to about 75, okay. but through my other travels for the National Geographic Channel, where I was working as a journalist for four yeah. years, I, I went to over a hundred and 110 or something now. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes. Yeah, so I went through a, you know, a huge amount of countries, especially in the South Pacific. I mean, uh, you know, the South Pacific is littered with many, many countries. And so I spent the first four years yeah. of my trip. In the South Pacific, and you know, I think I visited th- uh, twenty, thirty countries, hmm. uh, the South Pacific and the North Pacific, and then eventually made landfall in Singapore and went to Japan, did all of Asia. So it was uh, it, within four years, I, I, I got to uh, visit a huge amount of yeah. of wonderful places.
0: Awesome. So yeah, so this is uh, you know, uh, kind of adding up to quite the biography. You've got you know, sailing around the world, been to all these countries, worked for National Geographic. Um I saw that you you know, covered a war in Kashmir. Um and uh it looks like you uh, invented or pioneered a the sport of uh volcano boarding. Is that is that right? Can
1: you tell yeah, yeah, that? So, you know, um the great thing with National Geographic was uh especially as it took four years of of reporting and uh, only about two years was for my boat. The other two years was just travelling um and staying in hotels or And doing one camping out, Uh, I had a chance to do a bunch of amazing stories. And so, one of the stories I did was volcano boarding in the island, uh, in the country of Vanuatu, on the island of Tanna. And uh, you know, it's just this great uh, volcano that explodes, and people don't realize that there's pumice is very similar to snow. Pumice is um, the ash that comes out of volcanoes, and if you have a trade wind, it will blow it on the slopes and create a. Uh, A a kind of a texture that is almost identical to snow. And so if you have a really steep face, it's just like uh, going down. So uh, I had started this sport and filmed it for National Geographic, which has now caught on, uh, you know, um, in many places of the world as everyone's realized, wow, trade winds create pumice slopes uh, to go volcano boarding. And the key with volcano boarding is, of course, that occasionally a lava bomb or something will shoot out of the crater and, uh, <laughs> and try to land on you or land near you. And that's what makes the vo- sport of volcano boarding so dangerous is that, you know, you can be going down the slopes and all of a sudden be taken out by this hot molten lava rock. And, uh, right. you know, in the island I was in, some of those rocks coming out can be the, you know, uh, the size of a, of a tire. So, uh, you know, they're big. They'll go right through you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so that's uh, that's pretty uh, interesting. I went and uh, looked up some uh, videos. I think I saw the video of, of you doing it, and then I saw some videos of of other people uh, attempting that. I'm gonna I'm gonna post uh, some of that because that's that's interesting. It's always great to be able to uh, you know pioneer a new new sport, especially one with a, a name like that. Um, so. Uh, so was that just that just kind of uh, your own brainchild or did somebody say, hey, you should uh, give this a try and you were crazy enough to dare to do that? So, you know, what had happened is literally like five years before I had sailed
1: through the South Pacific and I saw this slope, but of course I didn't have a snowboard on my boat. Right. I was in a place that has no snow. But I remember the story, and then five years later, when I was working for National Geographic, I uh, I just pitched it to my producer, and he said, uh, "Yeah, yeah, go for it. That sounds excellent," and uh, yeah, definitely post it with uh, with the radio interview because. The it's only four minutes uh, the National Geographic webcast and it's a it's pretty fun it's it's kind of vintage material at this point because it's you know ten years old or so yeah. but uh, it, it is a, it is an interesting and uh, and you know it, it involves the the locals being sort of like well what's that what's that crazy guy doing yeah. what,
0: what does he mean he's going to go down the volcano so <laughs> that's awesome all right so let's talk about uh, your book the Transhumanist Wager and. Um, you know, I I find it really interesting because um, I think uh, a good chunk of this book is, is kind of based on your autobiography. Um, and uh, But yeah, kind of just for our listeners, could you kind of summarize uh, what the book is about? Yeah, absolutely. So the book,
1: The Transhumanist Wager, is about one man, the protagonist named Jethro Knights, and his overwhelming desire to try to live forever – or live indefinitely using science and technology. He is just somebody who absolutely does not want to die and doesn't believe that there's anything else after death. In fact, it's not even that he necessarily doesn't believe there's anything after death. It's just more that he is not in any way willing to take that chance. And so he's gonna do whatever he can to try to live indefinitely You know, using the power, using the tools of science and technology. And of course, the book sets up this conflict between um, very conservative people who don't want to, uh, whose religions say, no, you must die, that's the only way to you know, either get to heaven or some of these other uh, things like that, versus um, Jethro, who's more atheist-minded, who just says, you know, doesn't matter what culture says, doesn't matter what religious religions say, all that matters is that I want to live indefinitely using science and technology. And uh, the conflict of the book develops through that. And that's how the entire story goes on until you get to essentially a world war where Jethro is leading his own country of transhumanists, um, against a conservative bunch of people who are not willing to take on the, uh, a transhumanist minded world as Jethro wants it, especially one that, where he wants everyone to try to live indefinitely.
0: Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's a lot going on in this book and a lot of, you know, really kind of provocative, um, uh, ideas. So, um, just to kind of walk through that um so you know the the way the story is set up it's um jethro's kind of doing the same sort of uh journey that that you did uh kind of going out and trying to kind of come to grips with um i think the world and life and so forth and ultimately comes out of that um, with this drive um, to you know deciding that this is the this is the thing to focus on this is the thing to uh to spend all his energy and life in, is to pursue being able to live forever. And he launches this uh, large campaign to do that. Um, and so at at that point, uh, you know, I felt like the book kind of uh, it takes a turn there because it goes from something that, uh, you know, kind of like recounts history or recounts up to the present day, Sort of thing, and then it goes forward extrapolating as to what could happen. Um, and so the I think that's maybe the, the journey and so forth feel like it takes up you know, like kind of the first half or the first third of the book, and then it kind of pivots and it, it goes into this, you know, the stuff leading up to the world war. Um, did, for you, did that feel like a distinctive kind of switch uh, yeah. in the book? Yeah, no, absolutely,
1: and you know, you're 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 right. It's essentially, and I I don't like to you know label it this way, but it is this way. It's a coming of age book. Um, A lot of people, you know, you have to understand it as sort of a coming of age book. When you first meet Jethro, he's essentially an eighteen year old, which means he's a young teenager, Mm -hmm. and he has these ideas, but he's also you can see in him the deeper, the profundity of, of the, the concepts that he has, but he's still young. So he does some crazy things like sails around the world and covers wars and cashmere and stuff like that. And through all these experiences, and in, in fact, even meeting the person he will eventually marry, Zoe Bach, he becomes a man. And uh, so at least the first third of the book, which you know is very autobiographical, sort of follows the ideas of what does it take in order to try to achieve The I guess the the ideas of what it is that you want to do in life, what anyone wants to do in life, in Jethro's case, he wants to live indefinitely through science and technology. So the first start is a hundred percent a coming of age book, and then afterwards it becomes, you know, starts really detailing the politics of where the current world is. Um, Of course, it's you know it's an extreme version. Uh, in the real world, we have much more freedoms uh, than uh, Jethro encounters in the in the fiction in the, in the novel itself. you know, in America, he doesn't have the freedoms to do some of the things he wants with the transhumanist agenda. And that's where that, you know the conflict takes place in the story. Uh, and then furthermore, you know a- after that point, the uh, the the very religious and very conservative people kind of come after Jethro and eventually even force him out of America to pursue his dreams elsewhere, which is how he builds Transhumania. But yeah, no, I I I think this goes understated a lot of the times that the Transhumanist wager is very much a coming of age book, and if I I, I don't like to put it in a corner, but it really was designed for people that were are in college or or just. Uh, leaving college and starting their professional careers so that they might have or in high school so that they might have some type of uh, You know a book that they could really say wow, this is this is all that is before me. I can do any of these things I just need to have this journey in myself uh, w- You know a, a dream to read books a dream to learn a dream to grow myself a dream to think philosophically What is it that I really want to do in life? And that's really why I wrote the Transhumanist wager was to try to influence Many younger people to ask themselves how far are they willing to go to accomplish their dreams, especially transhumanist dreams. Yeah,
0: yeah, I found I found um, that you know that part of the book uh, incredibly uh, engaging and um, you know relatable, um, and I you know I I found uh, the character really compelling, the story really compelling, and um, then as you shift into you know, some of this, the stuff looking forward, then, uh, the book becomes much more provocative and, um, you know, I think invokes a lot more questions and dilemmas and, and so forth. But, um, yeah, for, you know, for anyone, um, out there, I would, I would say, you know, uh, this, this first part of the book is, is incredibly engaging and is something to, uh, to you know to enjoy even if maybe uh you end up horrified by the later parts of that and we'll talk about that in a second but um so uh so let's talk about like you know th- this has the book has become um controversial for for that pivot where where it goes into uh some of this confrontation and so as you say you know he's dealing with a world that is is really kind of out to um out to stop his his progress, out to stop his his pursuit of of uh, indefinite lifespan, um, and so then it comes down to a lot of conflicts between uh, religion and and uh, governments and so forth. And I think the the really uh, core thing that that happens is that uh, Jethro brings to the table a sort of philosophy that. Um, I would basically call like win at all odds. Um, and so he's willing to do absolutely anything to, to kind of get through those barriers and to get, get through to things. Is that a fair way to kind of state that? Yeah, yeah, no,
1: absolutely. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'll also admit that it's an authoritarian type of, uh, philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, he's essentially, you know, what happens? just so your listeners know at at some point in the book, uh, Jethro's, Essentially, put into kind of a a a war, and it's not the war that happens at the very end of the book. It's even in the middle. You know, the government and religious forces are kind of trying to uh, tackle him and take him down and make it so that transhumanism can't thrive. And so he feels, uh, at least from his philosophical perspective, that this is an outright violation of his freedoms. And so he, you know, most of the book. After that initial thir- first third, you know, the coming of age part is when Jethro is in a, is almost in a state of war, yeah. at least from a point of he's trying to achieve indefinite lifespan uh, and society is essentially not allowing him to do it. And so, yeah, I definitely think um, he develops an authoritarian philosophy that uh, is, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, it's fascist, it's this, it's that. Yeah. But you know, at the same time, it, it, he his life is being threatened. His, you know, his wife eventually. I, I won't try to give too many spoilers away, but they take away the things that are most uh, uh, important to him. And so, you know, he's a man who has been hurt by the world and hurt by society. So his philosophies naturally develop a very stringent course of action. And, um, and, uh, yes, it is a win at all costs at that point, because as some, somewhere in about halfway through the book, after uh, num- numerous attempts on his life have been uh, made, he's just like, look, this, this is essentially a war zone, uh, you know, at least from his perspective. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, um, yeah, let's talk about some of the ideas that, that get brought up, um, in, in, in this, in terms of, uh, the technology. So like, you know, the core of this is the kind of the pursuit of indefinite life extension, but there are some other things that um, that get involved as well, which you know, cryonics. Um, I think seasteading, um I I'm trying to think. Are there other other big technologies that you touched on that stood out to you? Well
1: sure you know I mean they're get into it gets into biohacking mm-hmm. when they put in fake you know artificial lungs and and some of that other stuff so it, it, it essentially crosses every single transhumanist uh field that I could think of yeah and tries to implement it and give it you know it doesn't emphasize any single field um but it does try to include all of them and say hey this is all very important including artificial intelligence I've I've said many times in interviews that uh, you know the transhumanist wager. One of the most controversial aspects of the transhumanist wager is this authoritarian philosophy. But I've, I, I do strongly believe that in the future, as we're dealing with artificial intelligence, a stronger morality of the human species might be necessary so that we don't uh, allow artificial intelligence to sort of get out of hand. And the, you know, in many ways, I've said the transhumanist wager is a bridge to some of the. Technologies that are coming in the future that might require a stronger sense of morality or a more authoritarian type of morality, but I, I agree with you that uh, you know um, I do try to keep in. I did I did try to include every single field of transhumanism because uh, this is uh, this is essentially um, you know it's an epic in the sense that it, it doesn't want to exclude any sort of part of the future. It wants to say this is how the world is. And this is one of some of the things that are going to happen, and so it, it you know plays all the fields,
0: yeah, so you know this idea of of uh, life extension, which is really the kind of core drive of um, what what is being pursued how you know how do you see that? do you think that's um, uh, pretty feasible uh, you know what what are the prospects of that that we're looking at now
1: well i I'm very convinced that Within 20 years from today, it will be very difficult to die in a modern hospital uh, unless something truly tragic happens, like a car accident just literally rips you in half or something so absurd. But it's going to be increasingly difficult to die, as it already has become in the last 10 years. I mean, think about when we were kids. You know, if you got your arm cut off, that was sort of it. However, now if you get your arm cut off, it's not it. They just put it back and hopefully it'll get you get 80, 70% of your mobility back under many circumstances. Every year technology improves. And the same thing happens with our lifespans. Every year that you can live longer, you get a better chance of living indefinitely. And for those of us that can make it 10 or 20 more years, uh, you know, pending no world disaster, no asteroid hitting the planet or no world wars and, you know, <laughs> the economy's continuing to grow. Um, we should get to a point when I believe that many of us, at least in the modern world, will um, have access to technologies and science that will allow us to overcome many things such as cancer and some of the other uh, heart disease and some of the other things that usually make people die. Hmm.
0: So it to you, like, uh medical science is going to advance fast enough that basically if we're at position correctly in that curve, then we can continue to benefit from those, um, from those advances and never kind of run out of advances. Is that?
1: Yeah. If you can make it 20 years, I think you're home free Because from that 20 to 30-year point, you start getting into kind of the Kurzweil territory when he talks about 2045 stuff. That's when you're talking about artificial intelligence. You're talking about, you know, different forms of energy coming onto the market. You're talking about, you know, nanotechnology being real and, like, actually helping out, not just, you know, being in some physicist's office and whatnot. So. I feel that if you can make it really in fact, I really feel if you can make it fifteen years, life is going to substantially change in fact i 'm just working on on an article right now when um, you know the argument is that essentially probably within fifteen years, a, a lot of us are going to start having um, computer chips in our head because they 're getting so good at connecting um, technology with synapses in in your brain and the neurons and stuff like that 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 type of technology is going to become ubiquitous with everyone having it sort of like everyone has a cell phone except the cell phone will be in your head and you know the more the faster this goes the as long as there's again peace you know as long as there's economies growing and yeah. no 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 terrible things happen to the to the species into the world uh, I think the longer you can make it, the faster uh, you're going to get to where you want to be, which is ultimately to a place where all of us could say, "Wow, uh, it, it's incredibly unlikely that I can die. It doesn't matter what it is." Uh, you know, I, I suppose you could die in a jet plane, and you know, you'll be obliterated to nothing. But in general, ninety-nine percent of your daily lives. You, you'll be very safe, even if you get in a terrible car accident, or even if you develop some type of cancer, or even if you you know you swallow a, a bunch of poison. You'll, you're going to be
0: safe. Hmm. So these uh, these chips in in our heads will that be like uh, like we've got chips in our cars right now, where they kind of give give the mechanic a a diagnostic code and say, hey, here's what's wrong. <laughs> You'd be able to read off what's wrong with your body from one of these chips, maybe. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And I'm not talking chips
1: that are going to control us or anything like that. I'm just talking about things that help monitor our overall health, things that tell us, um, you know, what is wrong way before we would have known it. For example, if a woman has breast cancer, which many, you know, one in eight, one in eight women get, it will say it months and months in advance. And if you can stop breast cancer months and months in advance of what you normally, you know, would register it. You have a very, very high likelihood of survival. The problem is that what happens is a lot of times people don't notice uh, things happening to their health until it's already to a point that it's too late, or it's to a point when they have to now undergo, you know, serious chemotherapy and, and these kind of things and take a year or two out of their lives just to survive. So these are one of these chips are going to come in extremely handy. Is they're going to say, hey, you know, uh, Mikov, you, you're not you're not uh, feeling that well today. And here's the reason. You have this happening in your kidney. And boom, that's going to be the thing. So you know, those are the kind of things that I'm looking forward to. And I just did a story on this on Motherboard about chips. So I actually did a ton of research on where it is. And I was actually surprised that further than I thought, about two to three years further than I thought, it's amazing how many universities are actually – working on using implants, um, into the human brain, into primates brains and testing this stuff. There's literally dozens of places around the world right now.
0: Hmm. So you, you talked about, um, AI being a, a potential danger. And so that's, that's interesting because I think, you know, for a lot of singularitarians, a lot of transhumanists, um, you know, AI is looked at as a as the kind of like the the cure all. You know, the thing that comes in and, and saves the day. How do you see um, artificial intelligence and and the risks associated with that, and what we need to do to approach that? So I I tend to side with
1: those that see artificial intelligence as the cure all, as the as the kind of the savior yeah. <laughs> of the human race. And I don't want to say savior. I just I feel a cure all is actually a great word. Mm -hmm. Um, it's something that's going to come in and within a few months of it being launched, we'll probably rewrite every single science and technology textbook that we have. The problem with it is that we need to be, we need to be very careful how fast that grows and how far out of our bounds that grows. And I would suggest, as I've said before, that We do not let that go unless we are already interconnected to it. In fact, I feel that the most important thing with artificial intelligence is not the development of artificial intelligence, but the development of the chips that will allow us, our brains, to integrate um, directly with artificial intelligence. The last thing we want to do is have artificial intelligence go off without a human, at least part of it. Um, we could. <laughs> it, hmm. it could be possible that you know we could completely miss the singularity, or at least miss that singularity. It, it's hard to know what would happen. Yeah. But uh, I think as important as developing artificial intelligence is also imp- is developing the technology that will allow us to merge with artificial intelligence at the moment that it's also expanding itself.
0: Mm-hmm. So, of the um, I don't know if you've seen um, any of of this, these movies, but there's been basically. Three um, kind of singularity movies that have come out this year. One was the movie Her. um, One was the movie Transcendence. And then most recently, Lucy. Have you seen uh, any of those? You know, I've seen Transcendence and Her. I have not seen uh, Lucy yet. Okay. So in, in those movies, what I find interesting is that we actually get kind of three different visions of the singularity. So in Her... It's kind of uh, the the computers, the OSs, the the cell phones, and whatever. They all kind of accelerate into this super intelligent state, and just kind of leave everybody behind, and and you know people just notice after they're gone. Uh, and then uh, in Transcendence, we actually have a a human uploading himself to a computer, and then um, the singularity takes off from there. And then in Lucy, it's kind of a biological. Uh, thing she you know transforms herself with a biological agent that increases her intelligence until she kind of essentially kicks off her own singularity. So I, I find it interesting because these are you know three different scenarios, three different kind of visions of of how the singularity might work out that you know I've seen over the years different people kind of argue for one of those um, different scenarios. What's, which one uh, to you felt like it came the closest?
1: Well, I, I'm I'm hopeful that transcendence, uh, you know, is the is the one that will come closest because I like when a human merges with it. I'm not a big fan of the OS's developing and just yeah. leaving. <laughs> Though I, I got to be honest, from a philosophical perspective, I could easily see the the, the and I and I think the, uh, the her is a classic. It's mm-hmm. one that I'm destined to watch many more times over my lifetime. And I thought that was such a brilliant movie. Yeah. But it's possible, very possible, that artificial intelligence and OSs would say, "Wow, I have no, we have no reason to be connected to the human race. They are totally a, a weird, inferior species, and we're so much smarter than them. Let's <laughs> let's just leave." Yeah. Um. Uh. However, you know, again, that's why I think with transcendence, I like it much more. This idea that we can merge and go through the process together, be in control of it, be be one with it, and. Um, you know, again, I'll have to see Lucy. I've seen the previews and it looks exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh so that that's kind of my take on that. I I'm, I'm kind of I stick with the Transcendence even though it wasn't that good of a movie. Uh it, yeah. uh it it certainly is um is what I hope to at least happen with myself personally. Yeah.
0: Well, cool. Yeah, I would say that uh her is you're you're right. Her is the is by far the best. Um, Lucy uh, was exciting um had, as some people have pointed out it has some of the worst brain science to ever appear in in film i think that's probably accurate but uh but it 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 told a great story and it did it um did it well i think so um but yeah that's uh, that's interesting uh to hear your take on that essentially like the the humanized singularity is the one that um that you're going for and um that's uh you know there there's some statements in in the book that kind of uh stand out where you where you talk about you know Jethro and kind of his uh intensity i think argues for um thinking like a machine or acting like a machine am i am I remembering that correctly
1: no no hundred percent and you know and i've and I've been saying this a lot le- recently that you know the the transhumanist wager is very much a bridge to artificial intelligence um I have no Interest whatsoever of, in seeing an operating system out evolve me. Yes. <laughs> I absolutely have zero interest in seeing that. Um, I have only interest in seeing myself grow with the technology, me remaining myself and expanding as I can understand myself expanding. Uh, I just to give birth to AI and let it run free, I, I just makes nothing, no difference to me. It's, it, that's great from an evolutionary perspective, but I'll see it as an enemy. Yeah, you know and uh so what i see is we need to control this uh this uh uh, this kind of burst of technological innovation and use it in ourselves and apply it to ourselves and without that i'm not sure i'm involved or wanting to see it happen uh whatsoever it's an interesting question i have actually haven't actually been asked that specific question but um yeah, I guess it's important for the record to say that uh, I'm not in, in favor of artificial intelligence just running wild whatsoever without the human race. Mm-hmm. I would be left behind. Yeah. And I, I think most people aren't either. Um, this is a, this is not a game of who becomes the most powerful. This is a game of us becoming the most powerful and enjoying the ride.
0: Hmm. Awesome. Well, um, there's so much more philosophy and, and stuff that I want to delve into, but uh, I think this is probably where we should... Uh, cut and uh uh so we don't uh don't take all night and um, keep you up and and keep me up and uh, keep our listeners up so um thanks for thanks for coming on uh any any last thoughts any any last words uh before we go
1: no but hey thank you so much for having uh, me on your show it's it's great to chat with you and uh... If you read or interested in my novel, it's, um, the, just go to Amazon and type in transhumanistwager.com. And uh, alternatively, there's a, uh, you can go to Barnes & Noble. So there's a paperback version and there's a Kindle version. And, uh, you know, frankly, uh, there's also uh, free ebooks all over the Internet. So if you don't want to pay something but you just want to read it, you're wel- more than welcome to uh, take advantage of, <laughs> of the Internet as well because it, I've just looked the other night and it's yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Well, uh, please, if, you, if, if you're interested in this topic, read it no matter how you get it.
0: Yeah, I would definitely be interested for our listeners to uh, pick this up, read it, and uh, let me know your thoughts and, and feedback because uh, it's very provocative, very interesting, and deals with a lot of uh, very uh, deep ideas. So, uh, well, thanks, Zoltan, and um, you have a good evening, and we'll talk to you later. Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much
1: for having me on your show. You have a good evening, too.